103. Listen, I am excited that you're here tonight. And um, I don't know about you, but I have, I have enjoyed this series so far. And I have enjoyed the questions that have come through. Last week, whoo, was a humdinger. And uh, talking about can family be an idol? And the answer to that is yes. God wants us to love our family. He wants us to honor our wife. And, and, and wives, He wants you to, to love and honor, respect, submit to your husband, children. He wants you to obey your parents, parents. Fathers especially, He wants us not to provoke our children to wrath. God wants us to provide for our families, but He doesn't want us to make our family an idol. Amen. And so, um, I got a lot of response on that. Uh, and so, hopefully, people watch that, go back and look at it, and uh, can learn some more. Tonight is a question that I have gotten a lot. I have gotten this question from Christians. I have gotten this question from atheists. Tonight, we're going to look at it, but before we do, I want to read our text. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 10. You ready? The Bible says, the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquity. Just a couple of verses. I do want to read it one more time just because it was so short. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Father, in Jesus' name, let this topic tonight be dealt with, Lord, both in balance, but Lord, also with grace and truth. Lord, I'm asking you to anoint my lips as a teacher tonight that I would not fumble up your truth. But Lord, even if I do fumble it, let your Holy Spirit make it real to the hearts of those who are listening. God, we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, good evening. And tonight is a subject that, whoo, is tough because I've been asked this question a lot. Are you ready for it? Here's the question. If God is love... Why was he so violent in the Old Testament? If God is love, why was he so violent in the Old Testament? Speaking of when God ordered whole nations of people, whether it be the animals, the women, the children, and everybody, God ordered them to be killed. I think it's a great question. This is a question that I have been asked by people who don't believe in God. In fact, they, they use it as, as sort of this, aha, I got you. And what they do is they try to pit, quote unquote, the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament. But we got a problem from the very beginning. You ready? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. But where we have a problem tonight is in understanding the nature of, of God. So tonight I want to bring some clarity to this. It's a great question. It's a worthy question. And uh, if you think this one's a humdinger, you need to come next week because I just finished it today. All right? So just whet your appetite a little bit. They get better and better, right? They're like watermelons. They get sweeter the longer that they stay on the vine. All right? I want, I want you to imagine something. I think one of the misconceptions that we have about God 
is that we try to make him in our own image. Now, I know that sounds terrible, and we would say like we would never do that, but we do. And not even in a bad way, but we kind of just process life through our own filters. We say things like, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do that, or I don't think that's right, or I don't think that's fair. The problem, though, is that even in our own sanctification, in being saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, our, our knowledge is still limited when it comes to the vastness of God. Listen, we will never, in our own carnal understanding, even our born-again understanding, will be able to understand everything about God. I want to tell you, the angels in heaven, which are spiritual beings that were created by God, they, they worship God all throughout eternity. And the Bible says that they make circles around God's throne all eternity. It says the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And they say it over and over again. Every time they make a circle around God's throne, they see something new about God never can grasp the fullness of it. All they can say is holy, holy, holy. Now I think tonight we would all be wise to say that there are things that we do not understand. I love theology. I study theologians. I don't claim to be one. There's so much I don't know. And I, I, when I get to study on a subject sometimes, even as a pastor, I start studying on a subject, and the more I study about something, the more I realize I don't have a good as grasp on that particular subject as I thought. But I think we would be wise tonight for all of us to realize and just to admit to ourselves there are things about God that we don't understand. The book of Deuteronomy says it like this, the secret things belong to the Lord. Those which are revealed belong to us and to our children. So there are things that God has hidden in a mystery that he hasn't explained to us. And I think that sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we try to have answers for everything. We find ourselves in theological conundrums when we try to answer, well, why did the baby die? And why did the marriage break up? And we have to feel like we have to have this answer for everything when sometimes God just looks down from heaven. You may not believe this, but God just looks down from heaven and says, that's none of your business. You don't believe that? Read the book of Job. Job was complaining up a storm about this and that and his friends and what happened to him and all of this. I mean, this God lost everything in just a matter of hours. The Bible says while one messenger was still speaking, here another one came. One on top of another. That old saying says, when it rains, it pours. Job experienced that. And Job's complaining to God. He's saying, God, I just cursed the day that I was born. And he was saying, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And God perks up in the book of Job. And what has he said? He said, Job, pull the chair up to my table. Let's talk for a minute. Job, let me ask you a question. Where were you? When the morning stars shouted for joy. Where were you when I told the waters to go out and to stop at their borders? Where were you when I established the parameters of the nations? Where were you, Job? And Job had to step back and say, okay, God is in heaven and I am on earth, so let my words be few. It's okay for us to say, 
I don't understand. But there's some things, though, that the Bible does reveal to us about God, His nature, and His character that we can study throughout Scripture. For instance, number one, I believe we can say this with that with the surety: God is good. God is good. The devil is bad. Okay, those are two parameters I think that we can agree on. God is good. The devil is bad. Okay, but everybody say but. Here's the big one. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Now, we've got to understand as we're looking through this, I want you to think about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis gives us a beautiful picture of God speaking the world into existence from the very framework of the stars, the firmament above and beneath, then on the sixth day creating man in his image and in his likeness, and then creating man a helpmate. Here comes Eve, she's walking with him, she's helping him, God gives them dominion and authority and then of course you know the story somewhere in the dateless past we don't know exactly when Lucifer fell from heaven in a rebellion because he was in the garden in the form of a fallen serpent and here man sins transgresses against God and the whole world goes off into chaos now in the Old Testament what we find is we find this beautiful thing of God creating the earth Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment, just in your mind's eye, that there's a beautiful painter with a huge canvas. Here he has all of his colors laid out, all of the pastels and all of the various colors that he would need to shadow. And here you're watching from a distance this artist begin to paint a picture. And then this artist in his painting, looking at the tapestry that he's laid out, sees a flaw. You may not see it, but the artist sees it. Come on, do I have any artists in the room? My brother right here. I know my sister back here draws. You understand, there may be an imperfection in your work that nobody else can see. It may be in the shadowing, it may be whatever. You may take your eraser and go back and fix that or whatever it may be. Well, I want you to imagine the creator of the universe creating this big tapestry. And then all of a sudden, season imperfection, and it makes no sense to us. But at that moment, they take a big brush with black ink. They just draw all the way across it, nullifying their work. You may say, that's crazy. Why did they do that? I didn't see anything wrong with it. But they did. And the truth is, it's their painting. It's their work. It's their effort. And they can scrap it if they want to. See, that's the difference between us and God. We live in this world, but this world does not belong to us. God created this world. He still owns the rights and the title deed to this earth. You know in the book of Revelation, when uh, I think it's chapter 4, John has a transition. I'm going to get into my text in a minute. John has a transition and he's caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he sees um, uh, this, this, this title deed, right? That scroll. We're talking about the scroll that the book of Revelation mentions. And he said, um, there's nobody in heaven or on earth worthy to open the scroll. He said, then I looked 
And I, I saw what was like a lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the earth. And they began to cry out, you alone, Lord, are worthy. He was worthy to open the scroll. Do you know why he was worthy to open the scroll? Because the book of Colossians says that in the beginning, Jesus was a part of creation. He created this earth. The Bible says nothing was made that was not made through Him and by Him and for Him. And still currently, all things are held together by Him. He created the earth. That's why He could open the title deed to the earth because He owns it. And folks, we got to realize that God may do things differently than you and I simply because He owns it. He owns it. You and I didn't create life. Yes, maybe through procreation, but even in procreation, we understand that God is the author of life. He gives the spark of life into the human spirit. But God's the one who created life. So I want you to look at Psalm 103. This is a very heavy subject tonight. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, he will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. I want to give us some context tonight. Psalm 103 is not a blanket statement. You can't apply that to everybody in the Bible. Uh, the psalmist, who was of Jewish descent, was writing this about God's people. This is a promise to God's people. God's promise to His people was to be compassionate, loving, slow to mercy. But the Scripture is full of, of places where God promises judgment upon His enemies. God promises judgment on His enemies. And tonight, before we start talking about the God of the Old Testament, uh, we, we need to reconcile my first statement tonight that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. I'm going to prove it to you. Because people say, if God is love, why did He do that? They act like He didn't do anything in the New Testament. He did. Let me give you some scripture. In Acts chapter 5, there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And in the birth of the church, um, the Bible says that it was really rough starting out. People had lost their homes, lost their families due to converting. And so it, there was something that happened in the formation of the early church. It didn't go on forever, but it did happen at the initial part. Uh, it was... Um, not communism, not like we think of the word communism, but they had commonality. The believers took their excessive goods, they sold them, they distributed money to everybody, and they kind of all started over, right? That's what they did. They, they started over because these people were coming into a new movement. They didn't have anything. And so these people, Ananias and Sapphira, they had some land. And they sold this land, and they went to Peter, and they said... Uh, we sold this land for this much. Let's make up a, a, a thing here. They said, uh, we sold this land for uh, $100,000, okay? So they said, here's the money. But the problem is, they really sold it for $150,000. And they lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter looked at them and said, why has, your heart, why has Satan filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? And the Bible says that he fell down dead. God killed somebody over lying about an offering. And that was in Acts chapter 5. It wasn't in Deuteronomy 5. Then, 
if that wasn't bad, then Sapphira came along, his wife, she tried to pass along the same old story, and I can just imagine the Apostle Peter saying, are you sure you want to stick with that story? Yep, I want to stick with that story. Well, the same men who carried off your husband are going to carry off you, and boom, down she went, and they had a funeral that day. That's the God of the New Testament. Okay? Here's another one. This scripture's not in there, but you guys can look this up. This is in Acts chapter uh, 12, I believe it is. Yeah, Acts chapter 12. Let's look at verse 21 through 23. Acts chapter 12, 21 to 23. It says, So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and he gave an oration to them. He spoke to the people. And the people kept shouting, This is the voice of a God and not of man. So Herod was exalting himself. Look at verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. It does not say Satan struck him. It says an angel of the Lord struck him. So before we get into this too hard tonight, we need to not say, well, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament... We need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture of God's character that we do see mercy in the person of Jesus Christ, but we do see this nature of God. So if you're taking notes, I want you to look at it with me. Number one, we've got to understand the Old Testament context. We've got to understand the Old Testament context. The Old Testament, which is comprised from Genesis to the book of Malachi, speaks of the period of time before the birth and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's the time of Israel being established of a nation. It is a time of God's holiness and His standards being put into place. It is a time where God established the fact that His people Israel were to be separate and not like the other nations of the world. Uh, in its historical and cultural context, it was characterized by warfare. You saw people that were seizing uh, other properties and having conquest, just like the children of Israel went into Jericho, they went into Ai, they went into all the different places that they fought and they took conquest. There was war, there was bloodshed. Um, we also see ancient customs and we see God's dealings with Israel as a chosen nation. So it's essential for us tonight to interpret what we see in the Old Testament in the light of these historical and literary context to glean a clear understanding of what we would consider divine violence in the Old Testament. So I'm moving quickly tonight. Here's number two, because we had a lot of scripture to cover. Number two, we've got to understand God's whole character. We have a difficult time in this present culture and generation understanding this because we have been preached God is love, God is love. God is love so much that we forget that God is also holy. God is also righteous. God also cannot look upon sin. Sin cannot stand in His presence. We forget that it was God who created hell, which is eternal retribution and judgment. We have to forget God's entire character when we're dealing with such a subject of this severe nature. God's nature includes love, but it also includes justice. And so his actions must be weighed in the light of his perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. 
Listen, the Old Testament portrays instances where God executes judgment on wickedness, often including very violent means to bring about justice to protect the innocent. Let me give you an example of that tonight. One of the most famous ones we all know about is the flood of Noah. Listen, it is incomprehensible for us to think about tonight what was actually going on in those days. You have to ask yourself the question, what was so bad about Noah's day that God looked down from heaven and decided like like an artist striking through his artwork with a black paintbrush, decides, I'm killing everybody and starting over. It was bad. The Bible gives us a bit of insight. This is not concrete theology. The people are divided on it. There are several different aspects of trains of thought people take here. But one of the main ones is, is that in Genesis chapter 6, there were these, um, these uh, fallen angels that had relations with women and produced giants. Now some people say they don't believe they were angels. They were the, the, the offspring of, uh, of, of Cain or something like that. But uh, irregardless, wicked things were happening in this day. So much so that Jesus makes a statement. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, and they were giving in marriage till the day the flood came. They were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in marriage. Now, I'm not going to get into this. I will get into it next week. So I don't want to say too much more. And I don't want to give away what I'm talking about. However, historical records tell us there were crazy things happening during that day. It was so bad, God looked down the banister of heaven, got up off his throne, proverbially speaking, and said, I repent that I made man. For those of you who are diehard King James Version people, the King James person said, the version says, the Lord repented that he made man. Repented. He was sorrowful that he did it. He looked down and he saw the wickedness of man's heart was continually filled with What was even sadder is that he looked down And he only saw what he considered to be one righteous man, Noah. So he took Noah, sons, Ham, Sam, Japheth, their wives, the animals. He told them to build an ark. They got on there and God wiped, listen, God wiped out the entire earth. Except for those eight people. Human race. I don't, know why I, have, I don't know why people have so much trouble believing in modern day miracles, but we believe that a dude named Jonah got swallowed by a fish. He was in there for three days. And we believe in Noah's Ark and stuff like that and axe heads floating, but we don't believe somebody can be healed of cancer. I don't understand. But what we've got to get tonight is that God wiped out the entire earth. You know it was so bad? That when the flood water started to subside, that Noah sent out two birds. He sent out a raven and a dove. Raven, in Jewish culture, is the most purest bird. They're clean animals. They don't like filth. They don't like whatever. They're white, symbolized purity. So they sent out a raven, and the raven came back into the ark because he had no place to rest the sole of his foot. 
the, the raven wouldn't light down on anything. But Noah knew it was still bad because he sent out the raven and it didn't come back. You know why? Because it just feasted on the flesh. I don't mean to be gross, but I pastored in Louisiana right after the, the turn of Hurricane Katrina and everybody migrated up into the mid part of the state. And they said it was so bad because New Orleans is above, uh, below sea level, way below sea level, that the mausoleums that they bury people in, there were bodies floating around in the streets in New Orleans. It was horrible. Listen, if you think that was horrible, the flood was a lot more horrible. And God started all over. Um, then we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, where God, because of the uh, wickedness there. Wicked, wicked, wicked stuff happening. There was uh, rape on public square, homosexuality to, to just, our minds would just be blown at the things that were happening. So much perversion that, that a man was willing, I don't understand, was willing to offer his daughters instead of, God help us, I don't understand it. But, but it was so wicked that God rained fire and brimstone out of heaven and Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back Sodom on her way out terrible Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1 through 6 I think they have this on the screen it says when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you shall, you shall possess and has cast out many nations before you the Hittites the Girgashites and he goes on talks about the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all the ites somebody say the ites all the ites and the seven nations greater and mightier than you. He tells them, he says, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and you shall utterly destroy them. You shall not make a covenant with them nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to your son nor take their daughter for your son. Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, burn their carved images with fire. Verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen to be a people for himself, a, a special treasure above all of the peoples of the face of the earth. God told them to wipe out all of the Canaanites. All of them. Don't leave anything alive. There's a reason though. God knew that some of these excuse me for a moment. God knew that some of these lonely men would find them a wife among the Canaanite women. And guess what, when you, guess what happens when you get a Canaanite woman? Get Canaanite idols. And all of a sudden, their relationship with God become unpure and the whole thing got wiped out. That's why God said, show the enemy no mercy. No mercy. We have this in the Old Testament. We've got to understand God's command. God is the, you say, well, how can God take life? Listen, God is the author of life. It's not right for us to take it, but he can, if he so chooses. Now, this is interesting. Here's the third thing. I'm going to try to get through this quickly tonight. Here's the third thing we've got to remember. We've got to remember God's holiness and man's 
sinfulness. Human sin and rebellion against God are prevalent themes in the Old Testament, leading to consequences and divine discipline. So God's acts of violence should be seen in the context of those things. God does not deal wickedness like we do. We have scriptural examples of it. Israel's disobedience caused subsequent discipline. Exodus chapter 32 and Numbers verse four, uh, chapter 14 tells us about that. Uh, in Amos chapter 1 and 2, we see God's punishment of the surrounding nation because of how they acted. Here's the fourth thing. I told you we're going quickly. Fourth thing is we must see the whole picture. Supposed acts of God's violence in the, New Test- in the Old Testament must be seen in the light of His redemptive plan to bring salvation and ultimate restoration to humanity. Through Christ, God reconciles and demonstrates His love by providing forgiveness, reconciliation, eternal life. You've got to understand that, that while it does seem, I'll have to admit to you, it does seem that God chilled out a whole lot in the New Testament. We see a couple of things, Ananias and Sapphira. We see another person's uh, smoke with blindness. Uh, we see several things, but it does seem like he, he kind of chilled a little bit. But you have to understand, the Old Testament was pointing a picture to us of God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice. And he was trying to show us God's attitude towards sin. God's attitude towards disobedience. Listen, I I think sometimes we fail to realize because of various films that we watch and movies and and whatever, uh, Mel Gibson certainly did the best that Hollywood could do, but the the passion of the Christ uh, shows us in the best that we can see in real life picture outside of being there, just how gruesome the cross actually was. Jesus endured God's wrath on that cross. And make no mistake about it, it was because of sin. The swiftness, all of those things show us God's attitude towards sin. We'll look at Romans chapter 5. It says, but God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Revelation 21 verse 4 and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. See, we have to see the whole picture of God's redemption for humanity. Why was He so severe in the Old Testament? Wiping out people. Wiping out the earth. Because God was trying to show us just how serious it was. It was bad. Not just it was bad, it's still bad. Only thing that separates us from that type of wrath is Jesus. Is Jesus. 
Jesus became the Lamb who took our wrath. Okay, when we sin, God views it like those Canaanites. Wipe them all out. Don't take anything. Don't, don't take a wife. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Wipe it all out because it's going to corrupt the whole nation. Listen, God sees sin this way. And guess what? Sin is so bad, God had to do something about it. So what did he do? Jesus. Now, stop right here. I don't want to go too much further. But especially in the Old Testament, even though these nations did not follow the God of Israel, they had an understanding of His ways. They had an understanding of what He expected because there was interactions between the nations. And so you've got to understand tonight that when God looked at Israel, which were His people, and then He looked at the nations of the world that were wicked, whether or not we agree with it or not, it doesn't really matter. God was just the way He dealt with those people. Say, how can you say that? Again, it goes back to the premise of my message at the beginning. We didn't create this world. So it's not our rules. Listen, if I created the world, it'd be a lot different. Some things would be better in your perspective. Some things would be worse. But I'm telling you, it would be skewed. You know why? Because I'm still human. Still human. I would probably let some things slide. Other things, I would say, show no mercy. You would too. But God's not like that because He's perfectly just. So I think what we need to walk away from when we think about this whole perspective of why was God like this in the Old Testament, simply to show us God's attitude towards sin. And he was totally justified in doing that. He is holy, righteous. Now what you and I can do, standing on the, that side of the table, if we ever encounter somebody that has this type of argument that they want to throw in our face and say, well, yeah, well, if your God is so loving, what about this and that? Well, it's a good opportunity for us to talk about why Jesus had to come into the earth. Because he is the answer for sin. Because here's what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but unto mercy. I'm thankful about that, amen? I'm thankful that because Jesus took the wrath of God, I don't have to take the wrath of God. That doesn't mean I won't ever suffer hardship. But in judgment, I won't have to suffer the wrath of God. Because Jesus became our wrath. Amen.